You're listening to Build for Impact, brought to you by MarketScale, with your host, Daniel Heward. Hello, everyone. This is Daniel Heward, your host for Build for Impact. Today, I'm joined by a really close, uh, I, I refer to Eden as a lifelong friend, and that's Eden Bruckman, uh, who's an architect, lead fellow, and CSBA, the Senior Green Building Coordinator with the San Francisco Department of the Environment. Um, Eden and I met over 10 years ago when she was fully engaged with the Cascadia Green Building Council and uh, at the time Vice President of the International Living Future Institute. Um, and since then, we've managed to run into each other at various conferences and events, kept our friendship uh, and dialogues going over that span of 10 years that I'm super thankful for. And, uh, you know, Eden is one of those people who's a, a superb leader in our green building world. So having shared that as a, as a premise to get our dialogue started, um, you know, I'll go back and stuff. And, you know, one of the earliest lead APs that I know was Eden, who became a lead AP in 2004. But Eden, let's take a dive at sustainability. Um, and we know it's important to you. You know, you you even did some work that predates uh, the the lead APs being actually actually there. So, can you share your your thoughts on on sort of the history, some of your history, and uh, where you think we you know we should be going? Sure. Well, greetings, Daniel. It's fun to be here with you today. Um, yeah. So. I actually had the fantastic opportunity to work on a lead project when the program was still in its pilot phase. So in the late 90s, um, I was a green team member and a plan coordinator and also the lead point of contact at some point for the Capital Area East End Complex, uh, which was five blocks of city of, of buildings for the state of California is coordinated with the GSA, the General Services Administration, in Sacramento. Um, and I worked specifically on Block 225 at first. This is when I was with Johnson Fain uh, Architects in Los Angeles. And then went on to do coordination work for all five blocks of buildings. So it was certainly um, one, one, one of my earliest experiences in my professional career working on explicit green building goals. And um, really curious and interesting to see how that translated from kind of an academic pursuit or an academic understanding that I uh, got from my wonderful professors at UC Berkeley to you know, hands-on, this is what it means when you actually have real buildings going up and now a rating system that will demonstrate, you know, determine whether or not you have compliance. Yeah, that's really awesome. And, you know, I think I need to share one more thing for our audience listening. And that's the fact that you've worked globally, uh, in, in a, to a great extent globally. Um, what's your your ideas, or, or you know, share some of your perspective on that global experience? And are we are we still leading the world in sustainability here in America, or um, it, you know, have we seen other nations and places catch up, or even pass some of our efforts? What your your thoughts on that, Eden? Well, goodness, I don't know that I would have put the United States as a global leader for sustainability across the board, maybe in certain areas for sure. But, um, you know, so many other places have been very much rooted in sustainability or green building practices for 
decades and decades. I mean, the lead rating system is certainly a moment where you could kind of could put the, the flag in the ground and say, you know, now we have this collection. At the time, it was created as a standard of standards to help folks um, see where they could go if they didn't necessarily understand different areas of impact or influence um, and be more aware of what would be hidden trade-offs if they didn't pay attention to those different impact categories. Um, but countries around the world have been championing um, chemicals of concern, uh, water reuse practices, energy efficiency, um, material reuse, circularity themes for many years and, and certainly before um, we had the had had the rating system codified for us yeah and you just made me think of um you know some stuff that that uh i was involved in years and years ago um in in canada in you know they had the the sort of building um sorry i, I can't i think it was rs 2000 um and it you know and it predated uh, it predated lead and a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, and it was an attempt to uh, to really move buildings forward in energy efficiency forward in a really big way. And the very first net zero project that, that I attended or, or went to see live was in Toronto, Canada, and they were net zero water and net zero energy. They were actually net zero and net, uh, uh, net positive for both. Um, and it was on a site where they were in a very rocky site in in a, a suburb of or a neighborhood excuse me of toronto and the the building was was built in there and because of all the rockiness there was a really difficult ability for them to connect to the the public services there was a, a sort of a band on them blasting in order to break a channel away in the rock to to put in piping and stuff so so they designed <clears throat> excuse me so they designed these homes that were completely solar powered <clears throat> collected and treated all their water using a waterloo biofilter and really moved that that thing forward and that happened in the in the late 90s as well um so you know really thank you eden for sharing with our audience that you know the concept of sustainability didn't just arrive in the U.S. There was other countries that had really big contributions along the way. And I really think the program I just shared um, still has advantages over our Lead for Homes program, for example. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I... I do, th I do think that, um, you know, one, one of the things that we talked about often with the, the Living Building Challenge was that it wasn't, none of the individual principles of that program were new. It was just the first time that all of those ideas were being brought together in that particular way. You know, that, that, that principles of restorative design or thinking about giving back more than you take or really understanding the balance of your site and what assets it had and what challenges it had and what, what, what you would go into deficit with as you borrowed to create something new um, and how you were going to replenish that in another way. Like these are, these are ancient principles. I mean, you can, you can look back. I, I remember uh, doing uh, research on the Anasazi, you know, in the Four Corners region. Like 
that is sustainable design just as much as anything, maybe even more so than uh, things that we're doing in modern day. So um, it, it, while we don't have to go back to kind of ancient principles, um, many times designing with designing with nature in mind is a fundamental um, perspective that goes back long before we even ha had a trademark on on the term sustainability. Yeah, I, I, I you know, totally concur Um the you know, the moving into that direction has been a real, real plus uh, for us. And I really see, uh, you know, the need for it as well uh, for us to do that. So, you know, really, when we start talking about these concepts, Eden, you, you lead me into the, you know, the second pillar of, of my build for impact. And, th and that's resiliency. You know, so you touched down on a few things that are really key as initiatives or uh, component ingredients for a resiliency response or resiliency, I don't know if I would go so far as to say solution, but really, uh, really active uh, stuff. So in, in that regard, and I know that you've done a whole bunch of code work as well, what your thoughts on resiliency, uh, you know, and I personally think that we need more effort in resiliency, but I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on that on that subject, Eden? Well, gosh, it's such a broad term. Um, it really can apply to so many things. And I think most often when we think of resilience, we think of, you know, what happens following a natural disaster or human-made um, situation that we then have to bounce back from. But there's so many other aspects to resilience of being able to maintain uh, operations without having to face that that situation you know how do we think about long-term impact um, long-term potential to live lightly so that that's resilience too without being prompted um, by a, a fire or, or earthquake or something else um, and so from from that perspective, I, I, I hope that we're thinking about this from an equity perspective and you know who's involved and, and how how are we shaping what we build to meet everyone's needs. And that kind of also speaks to the um, the notion that I used to say a lot of with, with respect to living building challenge as well around the beauty pedal which is we we tend to take care of things that we care about so from a resilience perspective there has to be a level of intention a level of care a level of thought um time that really honors the fact that we are about to take up land for some purpose and some use um take the resources necessary to make it a structure to to make it function on a day in day out um, kind of way. And so um, resilience to me is kind of also another one of those fundamental aspects that um, doesn't have to be um, extreme, but, but, but can speak to kind of long-term um, how, what is the part that we play in, in our symbiotic relationship with our environment. Yeah, it, that's a really cool thing. And, you know, sort of getting back to the resiliency response um, I was trying to remember the name of the house, and it's the Canadian uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation did a, uh, a design uh, competition in 1991. So the house that I referred to was was uh, a part of that in, in 1991, and and the the house won the competition in 1992. So obviously we're predating a lot of the work 
that we're relying on currently. And and uh, the it's a 1,700-square-foot um, house in the Riverdale neighborhood of Toronto for our listeners, uh, if they're interested. And um, the, the really cool thing that sort of helped me move even further into the green building world when I first saw it um, was that it, it was designed at the time to have an operating cost of less than $300 per year. And it was taking care of all of its own water, its own wastewater treatment, all of its own energy. And the $300 a year was a necessary buffer for them to use uh, a generator to charge their batteries in the event that they had three days in a row with insufficient solar gain. So, you know, we're looking at a resiliency response from 30 years ago, right? That 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 is, or 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that is super, um, you know, it's super relevant even today. So I think when we look at these concepts, we don't need to dive in to, you know, defining who started it. I think who started the movement and inspired somebody to continue is really where uh, the importance lies on that. And, and I'm really happy about your sharing of your uh, opinions on resiliency. And, you know, I'm a believer of lifelong learning. And, you know, every time you and I dialogue, even if it's just catch up, um, I, I always learn something. I take something away. And that's why I value our friendship so much. Oh, so, that's so wonderful. Thank you, Daniel. I, for me, too, I feel that if if I'm going to get out of bed in the morning, there's got to be something I, I get to learn that day. You know, <laughs> there's got to be some reason, some motivation um, to, to get out of bed. And for me, that is it's also about learning and, and seeing what others are doing that I'm I'm constantly inspired and surprised and just excited um, with everything going with there's so much good work going on and so many really just incredible efforts that people are undertaking and um, I'm excited by people's response to these different to these different themes that you're mentioning sustainability and resilience so far yeah so I'm gonna jump into our next pillar and and that's material transparency and before originally or initially handing it off, I'm going to cue our listeners to let them know that really that was an area of big focus that you had when I first met you, um, that we needed to make sure, and it was certainly possible for us to have stuff that would conform to a DECLARE certification, um, you know, back then in 2010, 2011. And we, you know, we see that that is completely possible now. It's really great to see more and more manufacturers uh, striving to get there um, without talking too much of the technical details about it. You know, you became a, a sort of a pioneer championing that um, in your move to become the technical director of the Health Product Declaration Collaborative. And I know that was some of the busiest time of your life when you made that move. Um, and I used to run into you carrying stacks of binders and stuff for presentations from, from one room to another. You were super high demand, like you are again today. But, you know, give us your thoughts on starting that, you know, starting that need, making people aware of that, and, and your feeling on material transparency. Uh, from, you know, you could start from the, the middle, you can, you know, look at today, what, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever you'd like to dialogue about. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, well, first, I have to say that um, there's been people doing this work yet, you know, for decades around transparency. And um, it was always something that I was 
interested in even when I was, you know, in high school trying to uh, start to wrap my head around my desire to be an architect one day. Um, and of course, you know, that's like the last thing that people expect is that architects are going to need degrees in material science in order to uh, specify products for their project. But we're kind of getting to, we're kind of got, we're getting to that point. And, and in part, that's because of the way that the system is currently, you know, constructed. So some of the tools that I worked with others to create, whether it was the health product declaration or declare or early days on the Pharos project and some of these other tools around um, building material transparency. Um, and keep in mind, these are tools. They're not endpoints. They're ways to help communicate a message, a need, an understanding, a mutual communication path, right? So I feel like that, that oftentimes um, these tools can get misunderstood or, or misused um, in that people tend to sometimes think of them as, well, I got my HPD and now I can just put it in a drawer because I can check a box. So what what is the process of asking for that and, and how are you asking for that? I think um, material, so much about material transparency is really about encouraging cooperative communication practices between consumers and manufacturers and shifting the language away from that shame and blame situation that we had and that I witnessed day in, day out at all those conferences that I saw you at um, and in many conversations to be more about um, acknowledging that we can learn from each other, that the manufacturer knows more about what is possible uh, for that product and for reformulation and and for the hurdles that they're going to face in any new release of any of any changed product um, than the consumer, than the designer, than the, the building owner or operator. So rather than accuse a, a manufacturer of being short-sighted when it comes to material health or transparency, we have to remind ourselves that the things we only ever asked about were aesthetics, function, and cost. So where does it come into play, all these added um, set and seemingly sudden priorities? So we have to step, take a step back and say, help us better understand the product. You know this better than I do. What is possible? What, what do you know about? this issue or, or that process that can help us meet our goals of having a better indoor environment for our client or for our staff, fill in the blank of, of who is who is speaking in that role. And moving towards um, working together rather than fighting it down to see, you know, who was who was right. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, that's not um, that's not really um, a recipe for success. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to I keep going back in time to, you know, some of our earlier meetings. And I remember doing our trainings, uh, you know, for Living Building Challenge and, and doing the specific trainings that we collaborated on developing for things. You know, I focused a little more on the net zero energy one and other people fo focus more at that time on the materials one. And I still remember how great it was when the, the light came on on the materials one because we always had this worry about how are we going to get the information. And, you know, you were really great at saying, we ask. We just ask. And, and we formulated, uh, you know, form letters for people to use who were awkward with with making the ask so that you know here was a tool that you could rely on until you felt confident enough to do it 
on your own. And and really, it's so funny that, you know, with my work with Global Green Tag, we will get a manufacturer and a constituent supplier is not being transparent with them. I come up with a notion that, listen, I will sign the NDA with you so that you give me the, the information on the materials uh, so that I can validate that, you know, we, we don't have more than 100 ppm of something that might be dangerous within a formulation so that we can certify this product for for your client and mine. We're just trying to help them succeed. So, you know, I don't have any desire to sell your recipe or, or to really know the, you know, deep, deep stuff in your recipe. I just want to, you know, see us get to a result that benefits people. That's true. And, you know, transparency really is that first step. It's it's not the be all end all for the reformulation of the product necessarily, but at least it provides some information and some indication of where we are um, and whether that is for that supplier or for that first tier, you know, first tier supplier or that manufacturer or the consumer. Um, it, it, it gives it, it provides information. Um, and once you have that information, then you then you have a place to go from there, um, a way to determine where where are our priorities? Where can we make changes? Um, what is what is most critical for us for for change? And so um, at the at the end of the day, the goal isn't necessarily transparency. It's a product that is safe, right, for um, upstream um, players who are doing the extraction to the manufacturers to those who are installing to the occupant and you know reuse or end of life situations and so um that's the ultimate goal and that's where i can come back to when i was mentioning before about how these are these programs are really tools to be used um in and of, of themselves they offer some value but their ultimate purpose and their um, ultimate need is to help people along the way of that journey. Yeah, and you know, I'm going to share one more uh, plug about Global Green Tag, uh, and that's that our product health declaration, our PhD, was fully approved globally uh, by LEED and, and written into the addenda published on the 10th of July of this year. So where that changes it is from us really focusing in the Pacific Rim on delivering that to our clients there, to now having a global uh, ability to have those products that we've certified down to that 100 ppm constituent ingredient uh, level, be able to use globally. And I, I think that's where, where we come back to what you were just saying about a product that is safe, because that what we also do with that rating is have a healthiness in use rating for the end user which is kind of different in the industry. Do you have thoughts on that? And I'm not really, if you don't, that's fine too. Well, as far as um, a rating for healthiness in use, I think, I think in a way that kind of speaks to the difference between hazard and risk and why some manufacturers feel a lot more comfortable with a risk assessment rather than a hazard assessment, which is kind of more um, empirical to a, a chemical substance or a compound, for example. But um, the only situation I can think of, or the only shortcoming I can think of with respect to, to risk assessments or um, a prescription for something and how it's used is, um, well, what happens when someone uses it for a, a, in a way that's not the primary intention? So um, 
I, an example I can give you is for is I, I was doing my own uh, work in my kitchen and um, I was putting in a new a, a, a countertop and I needed to have a way for it to end uh, just to have an edge to for it to go up against and um, I was doing this myself I was trying to you know be creative kind of MacGyvered it a little bit and I ended up using a door threshold um, which is a you know it's a, a nice solid piece of metal the right the right length, the right rigidity, you know, um, in, in what became um, a surface adjacent for a cooking area. So if they had put um, certain finishes onto that door threshold thinking, well, it's just going to be feet touching that or shoes touching that, um, we don't have to really think too much about it, then there's no risk. But I used it uh, in a in a location where there was going to be a hand to mouth behavior. So of course, I, I chose something that had no coatings, et cetera. It just shows something that was you know, stainless steel. But just as an example of the difference between risk and hazard is that someone is deciding um, appropriate use and also um, making the decision of what hazards or may be therefore available in, in, in any particular situation. And, and so by having just the fundamental information about the hazards, people can then make a decision, oh, well, maybe I won't put that in a kitchen situation, or maybe I will keep that solely as a, a, a door threshold or a flooring um, application. So um, having the information and also allows us you know, to better understand what's where the flexibility is at and where we can see those risks play out based on those different uh, different situations. And I'm really glad that you shared that because you know we do our best uh, in this green building world to do stuff that's going to be safe for people. But at the end of the day, uh, in, I'll drift into the wellness thing. You're sort of responsible for your own wellness. Um, you know, in, in, in that regard, we, we can do everything we can yet at the, at the end of the day, it's the end user. We, we just, I think it's incumbent upon us to give them the, the healthiest, safest, uh, facility that we possibly can that's also the most energy and resource efficient uh, for them to function in or live in but it's still incumbent upon them to adopt that lifestyle to want to be you know better oh absolutely absolutely and and to be clear i wouldn't I wouldn't be holding the manufacturer of that door threshold <laughs> accountable if, if uh, an issue did arise. I'm just saying that by having that level of transparency and having an understanding of what that material was made of, I was able to use it in a different way and understand that I wasn't exposing myself to risk because that transparency element was available. So with respect to wellness, it's kind of, it is kind of the same thing. And, you know, we, we do have to make as as many choices as we are exposed to like how can we make the best uh, make make the best options um real but in, the, in many cases people don't have as much opportunity to determine that fate so um someone who is working in an office they get assigned a location a desk um, in a building they don't get to say well um this building doesn't work for me you know boss X company, you need to find me another place to work. Um, so we do have um, some limitations, um, whether it be because someone else is responsible for making those decisions, whether we are cost constrained and only have limited options, um, whether we are have limited knowledge on a particular issue and how it might impact us. So there's a lot of 
um, ways that we can help folks with the wellness um, piece of things to be better position them to make as good choices as they can, as most in well-informed choices as they can. And, and then there's the question of what happens when um, they have the information, but they don't have the means and how can we um, help fill that gap and when people are trying to do the right thing. I totally concur. Um, you know, so I really like your perspective on this. In, in, you know, actually our complete dialogue today has been, been uh, really fascinating. Uh, and I'm hoping the audience gets as much out of it as, as, as I do. You know, for your whole career, you've really focused on, you know, making social and environmental uh, responsible impacts. And, and you know, uh, I, I want to kind of bring us back to, you know, your senior green building coordinator at, at San Francisco Environment. And I really, uh, you know, applaud you for leading that charge. But I think that our audience wants to know what kind of stuff that you you've done in some of the changes that have happened. And I can just think, for example, um, some of the stuff that's gone on within the city, as well as the San Francisco airport, which is a, a monster undertaking. And, and I know that you were engaged with, with assisting in both of those. Um, let's, let's get some, some brief thoughts. And that's probably our, our toughest question to you. Sure. Well, I've been with the city for less than three years. So um, San Francisco has a long history of progressive policy and uh, very forward thinking action with response to climate, equity, green building. Um, there is a, there's a lot of history that um, I was very fortunate to be able to come in and, and create another chapter for together with my colleagues. Um, the Department of the Environment has a number of different programs. So whether we have, um, whether it is in green building, climate, environmental justice, toxics reduction, zero waste, transportation, energy, there's, there's a number of different focus areas. And so I'm very fortunate to have the expertise and kindness of a lot of colleagues <laughs> and a, a, a lot of people in, in the department um, that also are mission driven and have pretty big goals and pretty big vision for what we can accomplish um, through the lens of climate action for the city. Um, with respect to the airport, there's an incredible, wonderful team there, and they are really leading that charge. Um, I have the privilege of working with the various departments uh, to help them with their green building goals and help them meet the green building requirements that are established in our Environment Code Chapter 7, and those are the additional code requirements for municipal projects that go above and beyond our San Francisco Green Building Code amendments to uh, CalGreen, for example. So um, the last few years, we've been focusing uh, quite a bit on electrification and operational carbon. And we're currently looking at, for in, in the Environment Code Chapter 7 for municipal projects, an update to that chapter around embodied carbon considerations as well. So um, a lot of a lot of focus on how we implement these policies in parallel to what is the appropriate approach so that um, whatever we do put in place 
has a lens of economic recovery, of equity, of action, but then is is clearly implementable. Like it, it has a path to for success. Um, the last thing we want is for a, a policy to not be clear or easy for folks to adopt into their projects. Um, we want to set them up for success. Well, really well said. And I, you know, that whole idea of collaboration for success so that we can make impact is key to what we do. Um, you know, I've covered pretty much all of the stuff that I wanted to today, and I'm really happy that you touched down on uh, embodied carbon and operational carbon. Uh, you know, we could we could spend hours, as we typically do when we catch up in dialogue. Um, I'm going to ask you if you've got some closing thoughts for our audience. And, uh, you know, while I have you as a, as a victim, as it were, um, I think that I'm going to ask you to come back and join us again at a future point in time where we'll get maybe a panel discussion on on something key like uh, like operational carbon or, you know, a necessary resiliency response or one of the other big issues that's that's facing us. It could even be, uh, you know, equity in in green buildings. But uh, any any closing thoughts for our audience, Eden? Well, as you suggested yeah we we barely scratched the surface there's so much here and um i i do look forward to the opportunity to come back and and talk with others on on these critical topics um and really just want to thank you for your interest and your time today too well thanks eden and on behalf of our audience for build for impact uh we're we're so grateful that you shared uh some time with us today and some lessons and thoughts on the process uh, for our audience, send us in questions, comments, and suggestions on what you'd like to see in the future. Um, and join us again real soon on another episode for Build for Impact. Thank you.